0: The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there and welcome to the Numinous Podcast where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This season of the podcast is brought to you by The Threshold Community, a new online collaboration between me and my dear friend Holly Trular where we gather with like-minded, collapse aware people to tend the threshold of the twilight times of the world as we've known it. Together, we're exploring collapse preparedness, attachment and trauma and co-regulation, animism and eco-psychology, grief and death and ritual, transformative justice, creativity, and play. You can read all about it at thethresholdcommunity.com and find us on Instagram at Tending the Threshold. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with a wonderful and amazing person, Mara Kerr. Mara is my hide tanning teacher. Yeah, you heard that right. My hide tanning teacher, such an unusual vocation in these days. She's a somewhat nomadic teacher of land-based ancestral skills. She's going to explain it way better than I can, and she's going to do it over the course of two episodes, actually. This is part one of a wide-ranging conversation we had that touched on things like uh, growing up as an orphan, as she did, about attachment, about settler colonialism reconciliation and redress capitalism high demand communities animism ancestry healing all the things really are coming up here so here's mara and just so you know she's a woman of keen intellect she's going to drop a five dollar word "ethnogenesis," about five minutes in here it's just when a population of mixed people becomes its own culture now sit back and enjoy this conversation i had with mara so mara what identities do you lead with
1: well first i'm an orphan i was orphaned by my father at 20 months years old 20 months old and by my mother at three years old and so that is um, a lifelong orphanhood and it's a deep part of who i am because it's the first lens through which i experienced relationships and so it's often like the first assumption that i make when i move through the world i am also a settler My ancestors are from Hungary on my mother's side and mainly from Scotland on my father's side. Some of my Scottish ancestors were early colonial arrivals to the prairies and they were part of this cultural entheogenesis that was similar to the much larger Métis nation. Um, Métis, well that means mixed in French people from the british isles who mixed with indigenous peoples mainly on the prairies they were called half-breeds or country-born and they're often referred now as anglo-métis which is somewhat of a more polite term to modern ears but it's something that really practices erasure of the gaelic heritage and the gaelic language influence on the bungee dialect so in my family somewhere along the way people were able to and chose whiteness. And this was one of the many taboo subjects in my household growing up. And it's not something that I always considered a major part of my identity until we collectively arrived at this point in history of the DNA test. And now (laughs) that any white person can uh, sort of choose to take on an ancestry if they, find out that they have a very ancient ancestor from an indigenous language or indigenous nation. I think it has become really crucial for this to become a part of my identity uh, for those of us who are white and have been raised in white culture to use this knowledge of colonial displacement in our own lineages to co-create community rather than latch on to existing indigenous communities or worse, to use a long-gone ancestor as a key to doorways that are meant to be structures for redress towards Indigenous peoples today. That is not ancestral healing, and it's not what our Indigenous ancestors would want us to do in this moment. Can
0: you say that again? What do you mean when you say these, like, access to doorways that are supposed to be structures? Can you say, can you explain that in other words,
1: too? I would say, like, by way of example, um, there is a lot, there are a lot of folks who appear to be taking on Indigenous scholarships in universities because they have used a DNA test to validate their claim to an Indigenous heritage. Mm. And many of these people um, are not part of Indigenous communities and have not been raised in a community or claimed by one. And so, this structure of scholarship is in place to be a form of redress and a reparation to indigenous people but when it's used by folks who do not come from indigenous cultures whose only claim to an indigenous culture is a a long severed tie through history then those structures don't work um, and then that redress is not provided
0: Mm -hmm. okay i understand what you mean now that's a good specific Mm -hmm. example this um I mean, you know, this could actually open up so many mm. follow-up questions, which I'll maybe circle back to later, because in your work as a high tanner, um, you actually have very close and genuine relationships with different Indigenous nations, um, you know, that in terms of being able to share ancestral knowledge that was... Um, destroyed, where the lineages were, were destroyed within indigenous community. And that must put you in a very interesting position uh, in terms of walking between worlds and being a white person um, who, is, uh, who is trying to redress, but also holds the knowledge now. And it still holds the privilege and the power. Anyway, I'm gonna. I'm just like planting the seed that that may be a follow-up later. <laughs> but I'm curious um, if you can tell us maybe also a bit about your early life background. Because you and I have had, um, you know, just personal conversations about um, pretty specific topics uh, around and and so how you were raised at, you know. Um, certainly as an orphan, but also in high demand communities. that's come up on the podcast before. Notably, I'm just going to shout out to my, one of my favorite episodes of all time is the one uh, where I interviewed Alexandra Stain on um, disorganized attachment in cults and high demand communities. I'm curious, can you just would you be willing to tell us a bit about your yeah. early life in a high demand community and um, you know how that influenced you, how you left that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I grew up in this community that did not geographically separate its members from the rest of society, but it was able to physically separate people from society through its rules and social norms. So I very much grew up in a tight, insulated subculture that had its own worldview pretty distinct from even mainstream dominant narratives, although it shares a lot because it is a Christian religion. And any form of social contact with the outside world beyond the bare minimum needed to survive was disallowed. Um, And so I think that if you are an adult convert to this religion, you can hold the complexity and nuance and understand that people outside the religion are neither good nor bad. But when you're a child, when you aren't taught that nuance, you grow up in a world in which you think everything beyond your small community is dangerous, mm. and therefore, families like mine ended up getting very divided on religious lives. I remember growing up thinking that my non-religious aunts and uncles were evil, and I was terrified of them. um I did not have a lot of contact with them, but in the moments when I did there was a very clear understanding that they had taken a very bad road in life. And so this emphasis, I think more than a lot of, and a lot of the dogma in this religion is harmful, but I think that this emphasis on the duality makes for pathological levels of cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. because people within the organization lean on each other so much because they are each other's only community and they believe the outside world is very dangerous yet at the same time the harm that's happening to them in their lives is coming from within it's coming from the uh, authority figures in the religion it is also coming from within households because abuse is very rampant like on the domestic level and so it leaves people just so confused because they cannot leave a religion that has convinced them that they will suffer and be punished if they leave it and yet they are suffering on a (laughs) daily level in their interpersonal relationships.
0: Wow. And so here you are an orphan being raised by I guess other family members um, but also still estranged from a bunch <laughs> of other family members and was it like reaching adolescence or something like was your inner quester or your inner rebel like what part of you saved you from that how did you leave
1: I think that's what really like saved me like the internal thing that drive that all of us have that comes out in one way or another was really my like deep thirst to understand life and to have a bigger knowledge than the very small part of the world that I was like granted access to. I was just a nerd basically. I was like a huge nerd. I loved studying politics from the time I was like 11. And by the time I was 14, I was writing for my public schools newspaper about like geopolitics in the world um and i got really into studying religion and i actually had to hide the books that i would buy from the bookstore because when someone found this book about buddhism in my room they took it from me and we were not allowed to have that content in our house so were you allowed to
0: have the internet i'm like suddenly becoming aware like oh you're a bit younger than me so you probably grew up with the internet, but if you're in a high demand community, did they conceal that from you? Because the internet could have been a big lifeline if it was available, I guess.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I am so happy for the current teen generation. I know there's a lot of smack talk on the internet, but the internet would have saved me. No problem. (laughs) We did have access to a little bit of internet, there was instructions for a family home to always be in the kitchen or the living room so that parents could always like watch the content the children had and you know it was dial up there wasn't a lot going on i remember learning about anarchism from reading about it in like the public encyclopedia on the internet and i was like wow interesting <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of bare bones internet at that time <laughs> mm.
0: Wow, but anarchism did actually become a a pathway or a lifeline or something for you, did it not?
1: Yeah, it did. I would say that it was a huge part of um, my exit from the religion as well. Like many people who leave the religion as youth, I clung to something else that was bigger than me, and so what I clung to was what we called like radical politics it was like a group of friends who identified as anarchists and were very committed to direct action and social change and then that became my whole world and it was a a long time for me to go through what some people call like the de-brainwashing process or like the the deep decomposition. decomposition deprogramming mm-hmm. yeah because um like a root metaphor of this religion as well and i think like most religions is that you give up your personal agency and you believe in a higher power and it can take a really long time for someone to start believing in their own personal agency and when you combine that with living in capitalism which has such a heavy emphasis on the individual there can be a lot of self-blame Mm. because you you're told by capitalism that you are just an individual in a unit you also don't really believe in yourself as an individual <laughs> and you're just like desperately trying to find something to make the world make sense in the absence of a holistic dogma that once had an answer for everything <laughs> right
0: <So. laughs> wow and so what was that like what was your anarchist family like what did you go to and what was like, you know, so you left this one, this religious collective Mm -hmm. to go to this other kind of, how did you make your way? Did you have money? Did you have connections? Like, what did you do?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's such a good question. (laughs) I think that there's, for people to luck out and be able to leave a situation, it's often that there's like some incentive and when i was 14 a group of my friends ran away from saskatchewan and they invited me and i said no and the rest of my teen years these people that i had just so loved and like deeply connected with in our little rebel group i lost connection with them and i really feared for like what they might have run into it was very common for people to leave this community as teenagers and come back to it in their 20s and come back very broken because they we didn't we weren't taught interpersonal boundaries we weren't taught self-worth and so there would be a self-fulfilling prophecy that when you left this nucleus you would actually get further harmed in the outside world and that would only further convince you that what you needed to do was return home and return to god mm. i knew that I couldn't do that. And I'm not like much of a risk taker, so it wasn't really (laughs) worth the risk to me either. Um, But I I did have a really lucky thing in my corner, which is that um, when my father had died, it was through neglect and really like experimentation in the psych ward at the hospital that he was in. And my family had sued the acting psychiatrist who had forged the notes on his, um, uh, I don't know, his stay at the hospital. He was there for about a couple of days. Um, and so luckily for us, there was hard evidence that he had been neglected and the notes overlooking his stay had um, been forged by the psychiatrist and so each of me and my siblings got a little bit of money that we came into when we were 18 mm-hmm. that we could use to, to leave if we wanted to and I'm the youngest of four so one by one I saw each of my siblings use this nest egg and buy themselves a car wow. and all of the money was spent on the car. And so by the time I was 18, you know, most of those cars were not in their lives anymore. They were just working minimum wage jobs. And um, I did not want to be stuck in that. And because I had never known my parents, this represented their legacy to me. And they were these like mythic people in my lives whose lineage I needed to like uptake. And so... I was able to use that to move to British Columbia on the West Coast where I was just bombarded with like brand new culture every step of the way. It was a complete <laughs> culture shock. And, um, and I found out about a tree fit that was happening at that time, which was the tree fit that tried to prevent the Spencer interchange from going in to make way towards Bear Mountain, which is a sacred site and folks were living at the tree set and I found out about this entire sort of underworld of people who just went from direct action to direct action and made their house their home that way and I was completely smitten with it
0: that's amazing (laughs) That's so good. So then, when and how did hide tanning become part of your world and such an integral part of who you are? Because I mean, it takes space and it takes some like training and some like how how did this enter?
1: Mm-hmm. I would say that this retreat was probably one of the most formative experiences of my life because when I was there, I met people who knew how to eat food from the forest. And I had never like seen a forest before. <laughs> so, like, Let alone understanding that this is an ecosystem that humans are a part of and that you can thrive in one. I was just blown away. And I wanted to learn everything that I possibly could. Um, and so a short time later, I moved to an island and someone told me about this cabin that no one was living at. And it had been a cabin that was once a part of a larger squatting community of folks who lived a few miles away from the closest town and who had this whole trail system going back to the town. And this one cabin was in a really lovely clearing and it had an artesian well of water that just like rose to the surface under a cedar tree. And it was empty at that time. And so I lived in that cabin for winter And some folks that I met on this island who were also very skilled taught me how to use firearms and to hunt. And it was during that winter that in my just totally bombastic quest to be like, well, I have to like learn everything and know and do everything. I was like, what about tanning the hides, all these deer that we're getting? And no one was interested at all. So I had this moment where You know, all of my friends were kind of experts teaching me how to do something, but there was this vacuum when it came to high tanning. So it was my little arena to experiment and do a little bit of self-teaching. And I think all of those experiments failed miserably, (laughs) but it instilled in me this like immense desire and I was just completely hooked. So from there, I found a teacher The next year, my first teacher, Katie Russell, who was based in Montana, and I went out to Montana during hunting season, and we set up a skinning station, hoping that hunters would bring their deer to us. Katie had been doing this in Washington State, where she lived for a very long time. For five years, she had a skinning station, and hundreds of people would come to her house during hunting season, and she would just skin their deer and keep the hives. We couldn't really recreate it in Montana. It's a very different culture there. People want to do things themselves. They're not interested in newcomers coming and helping them out. So instead, we called butcher shops and we asked if we could just go skin. You don't have to pay us. We'll keep the hide. How do you feel about that? And that was a win. Um, I don't think we got turned down by any butcher shop. So yeah, about a decade later, I still go to Montana every year and I collect hides and it's an amazing place with so many variety of ungulates that it's just there's mule deer white-tailed deer there's antelope there's elk there's moose it is such a precious and incredible bioregion and mm. so yeah
0: and when you go out there can can you describe where you and your dog stay i mean, oh, yeah. i've like seen pictures and it's like this Moment is so amazing. I'm so tell us what it's like when you go to Montana.
1: Sure. Um, I this is my time of year when I am closest to the land and it's so special. Um, I live in a debris hut, which is a structure where all of the poles go to the center, and then it's just sort of like covered with debris. So it can be used as a survival shelter. But in a place like Montana, which is very arid and things don't really break down and they really don't get rained on very much, these shelters just stay up all year round. And it's about eight feet wide and has a fire pit in the middle. So that's my little home while I'm there for a couple months every year. It's (laughs) like a
0: wood and like, when you say debris, it's like, you know, scrubby bush and bark and it's like a tent but made out of like wood and plant material with a fire pit that you live in with your dog (laughs) and you skin and start like, it's really amazing. It's really amazing. Like, where do you think you got this confidence having come from this high demand community um, and then going to surviving off grid alone? Like How did you get the confidence to do something so difficult and demanding?
1: I think that it's related. I think that I really needed to prove to myself that I was going to be okay. And I had to take risks. I took a lot of risks too that I look back on now that I'm like, weird. Because even just a minute ago, I said I'm not much of a risk taker. And I I think that both are true at the same time because – I didn't perceive myself as taking risks. I perceived myself as going on a mission to show myself that the world is safe and that I have a place in it. And I just had to do that in order to survive because the alternative to that is either staying in that high demand community or um, really like the other alternative would have been suicide for me Um, and I think from previous conversations, you know, like that, there's a lot of suicide in my family. And it's one of the pieces of evidence that I could see as a child being like, this is not lining up. Right. <laughs> we telling ourselves how loving and supporting this community is, but there's a lot that's going wrong in our lives. And I didn't know at the time what happens in a person's life to get them to that brink. But I knew that it was possible for me because it had happened to so many people in my immediate family. Um, And so, yeah, when I look back, you know, I did a lot of hitchhiking. The way that I got around to all of these places is that I hitchhiked. I didn't own a vehicle for a very long time. That now seems like a huge risk to me.
0: I mean, (laughs) even now you as an adult with, you know, like kind of conventionally beautiful western beauty standards you know like sweet angelic voice it's like oh my god like as a mother it's making my breasts hurt to think of you like out there (laughs) (laughs) hitchhiking as like an 18 19 year old like that that's just i i feel the horror of that and and so contextualizing this um you know, you lead, one of your leading identities is as orphan. And so is it fair to say that all of this was um, a, a reparenting or like a re-embedding of your soul and spirit and your physical body back into the world as, as you say, like a safe place? Has this whole thing been the healing journey of the orphan in the world?
1: I totally think so. I don't know if I could have framed it that way, <laughs> but, <laughs> I do believe that I was trying to provide myself with a sense of security and belonging that I had never properly received because the sense of belonging, even in a high demand community, it's warped. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think I, we really do need to reparent ourselves. I think we do it on many levels unconsciously. And that's definitely what I was doing in reaching out to find sustenance. From myself and from the natural
0: world-hmm you mentioned all the ungulates in Montana. What, tell us about your special relationship <laughs> with deer
1: yeah, when you work with an animal for a really long time, there is a strong connection that's formed, and I think that that connection goes you know much beyond the physical. High tanning is. Magic. It is a strange and mysterious alchemical process where you start with one material. You start with this animal skin. And after you go through the process, you arrive at a textile that looks and feels and is nothing like what you started with. I mean, yeah, of course, I wanted to do more (laughs) of it. It's just so magical and so compelling. Um, But As I began my journey with high tanning, I also started to understand that it was not just a skill, but what we now call ancestral skills. I didn't even have this word ancestor in my vocabulary for such a long time, and I can understand better now that the connection that I have when I tan hide is a connection that my ancestors had. And I can feel that every time I'm in the process. Um, One of the most amazing things that I think of in really ancient European relationships to animals um, are the hunting cults of Nordic cultures. So like the word beowulf, it means bear. It actually literally means bee hunter. Bear was such a sacred name that people didn't even want to say it. And in hunting cults of the people who were designated to hunt bear they dressed up in the cloak of bears that were tanned and they did ritual and they embodied that animal and that even happens in the stories we get Beowulf is one of the only stories where we can really see that when people don the cloaks of animals they transformed into the animal Um, and I've had amazing moments like that where deer have been in my dreams where I've transformed into deer, and it it just gets so deep into your psyche that you can't help but like relate to this animal like it is your kin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and this magical process, you know, you you take you described it as you're taking the skin of the animal. And when I was learning high tanning from you and um, the elder uh, knowledge keeper, whose who's name was also Carmen, by the way, he, he, I loved that, uh, he, he talked about basically a process where you take this thing that appears to be dead and you're revivifying, you're bringing it back to life by working with the skin and turning it into this other thing. That's now immortal. You know, that the leather will last forever. The, this, the, this sheepskin is going to be, you know, an heirloom in your family. And there's such a incredibly um, yeah, alchemical magical and, and very transpersonal thing that happens when you're, when it's your own hand by your own hand, you are taking something that is dead and making it alive again in a new way. It's a very, um, interesting form. I think of, you know, to be romantic about it, you could call it a priestess path that you've chosen where you're like, I'm going to teach people how to transform what appears dead and bring it to life again. And, um, you know, bring back the spirit of the deer, bring back the spirit of um, the sheep. Uh, And my experience with uh, tanning rabbits, because we raise rabbits for meat, and I, the same thing was like, I can't dispose of this. This doesn't feel right. Something in me that was so it seemed foreign, but the more I connect with ancestry and the more I, you know, do my own um, study into ancestral skills, it's like, oh no, I have this like long kinship with, uh, with rabbit, with sheep, with deer, and it only makes sense now in retrospect that of course something in me was like there is a biological <laughs> wrongness about disposing of this and only eating the meat, right? Um, and so I, I understand uh, that feeling of, like, compulsion almost. That's what it is for me anyway, is that do you feel that kind of thread of compulsion where, like, you can't not want to work with the hide?
1: Absolutely. I think that even though there's this very important piece where we know that we're honoring the animal by not only using all of them carrying forward, But the actual act of the carrying forward is itself an honor. But there's also this part where we're doing it for us because we can't be fully nourished only by eating the meat of an animal. We are fully nourished when we tend the hide and use it. And when we work with the bones and we craft with them and like all these parts of the animals, they provide nourishment for us. And it makes so much sense to me that we feel the compulsion, especially if we are are letting ourselves feel it. And the more you work with an animal, of course, if you only pick up meat from a grocery store, I don't think you're going to necessarily feel compulsion in that moment. But if you've butchered the animal, like the opportunity for that moment is there and your body, I think, just like cries out for it.
0: Mm-hmm. I. Totally, totally agree. Do you do you have other animals aside from deer that that have sort of come to you or that you feel particularly drawn to or that you've had Mm -hmm. magical experiences in working with their hides?
1: You know, I identified for so long with the raccoon. And the raccoon is like the icon of wilder punks everywhere. (laughs) Like everyone I know has a raccoon tattoo, including me. So it's nothing new. But yes, this little creature who knows how to live in the city so well and who is not domesticated even though living in an urban environment, there is so much I think to be inspired by with the raccoon. That's and- so cool.
0: <laughs> Wither punk is a word I've never heard of. That's so you. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's an important word. <laughs> So cool. So
0: what collapse skill is like at your learning edge right now? Like, what are you working on, especially in COVID times? Like maybe Mm -hmm. things have shifted a bit in terms of what you have felt um, called to or like where you felt like you needed to level up your skills? What, What are you studying? What are you working on?
1: Yeah, COVID has really brought things to the fore for me because for the past two to three years, I actually, as you know, have kind of left the woods and have based myself closer to a population center so that I can teach high tanning mainly. And then COVID came and suddenly not only could I not teach, but like, what was I doing in the city or in the suburbs? And it it did put me in a really lovely place of reflection. Um, It made me realize that the path that I have chosen has been the right one for me and that the skills I have for my community are, are integral and are beyond valid and actually very deeply important. And I would say that if I had to choose one skill that I'm honing or that COVID has made just so important, it's relationships with intergenerational friends Mm. and yeah so it's not a hard skill although one of my friends who is a teen is currently my bow making teacher and I would not be making bows right now if it wasn't for him and I'm so grateful for the incredible knowledge insight and spirit that I see in the younger generation but yeah I'm very blessed to be chosen auntie to a few folks who are in their teens or younger. And I have so many relationships with people who are over 50 and I'm in my early thirties. So for me, I just feel so embedded in the community at this time. And now that I can't physically be with people, I'm trying to hone down this skill a lot. I'm like making the phone calls and I'm doing the text messages. and These are things that don't come naturally to me, but I realized they really are a collapse skill.
0: They absolutely are. Even as you're talking, I'm like, I should learn TikTok. Yes. <laughs> 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 My son, who's, you know, he's 16 and he's like, eh, TikTok, it's not his jam. But I'm right. like, oh, yeah. I also, um, have a, lot, a lot of teens are really going through it right now, and so mm-hmm. definitely I, I agree and want to amplify what you've said. Um, finding elders and folks over a certain age, uh, interesting, shouldn't be so hard. I live in Victoria where you know it's a very um, aging population, but you're giving me lots to think about, about mm-hmm. the folks that I do know that are a little older, like, oh, yeah, I should throw it up the chain as well. How, how are they doing Yeah. So when you're at a, at a low point, you know, because of the world, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: (laughs) how, how do you personally cope with grief and rage?
1: I think there's two ways that I do it. I first connect with my chosen ancestors, the people who were in revolutions, the people who were caregivers, people in history who, whose names I know and whose biographies I have read and who give me a lot of courage and also remember, help me remember to place myself in this enormously complex world and the industrial mega system that I live within and give me a lot of hope in a meaningful life.
0: Wow, could you okay, so that's very soaring and I'm like,
1: who share them?
0: Would you be willing to name a person?
1: Oh, sure. Okay, so this is maybe gonna be like a funny one if folks are history buffs. One of my dearest chosen ancestors is Lafayette, who is part of the French Revolution, also an orphan. Um, also someone who was considered incredibly revolutionary until suddenly he wasn't, and his ideas for community building which maybe were problematic because he was also a noble and had like a pretty you know punitive way of responding to his underlings Um, but he he prioritized community in a moment when people said no what we're actually going to do is just start chopping heads Mm -hmm. and his his demise so to speak is one that I think is a huge tragedy and his earlier career of being a hero also I think gives just so many lessons about how do we how do we like make revolution and why does revolution fail and it has so much to do with the way we relate to each other
0: Mm. awesome that's amazing (laughs) that's amazing like note to self looking up laughing
1: okay
0: (laughs) beautiful Uh,
1: and then personally i use the practice of breath work it's something that I go to in like all of the moments of overwhelm so I think I pair my moments of grief with a cerebral and a very like embodied response and I definitely need both of them one to feel really connected to the world and one to feel really connected to myself Mm.
0: wow So Mara, you're just such an inspiration to me. I I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I love having conversations with you. You're one of the best teachers in, of, of, of any topic I've ever had. And, and I'm like, oh, I feel emotional about it right now, thinking about the gift that your teaching has given me in my ancestral journey. It's, it's been beautiful and the you know i the example of the way you, you you move um so charmingly and engagingly and invitingly through the world as both very cerebral and very embodied you know just like this towering intellect who is wilder punk and you know off grid and um and very inviting and warm and welcoming so i i 'm so happy to be able to say that publicly and name that and uh, lift you up and claim you as a teacher and'm um, so happy to have you on the the show and share your story and um, yeah, thanks for everything mara it 's been good
1: thank you mm,
0: I love her. Check out the show notes at numinouspodcast.com for links to find Mara on Instagram and to her website, crowsnestwildcraft.com, and pick up the rest of this conversation with Mara when I circle back to that question about bringing hide tanning to Indigenous communities as a white-bodied person. I'm going to pick that up in the next episode. I would like to thank you for listening, and my listener shout-out today is to those few people in Montana who actually are listening, I I see you in the stats. Thank you. Thank you for spending time. Uh, If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, look for me by name at Carmen Spaniola and be the first to know about my new offerings and opportunities to work with me by signing up for my newsletter at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.